you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Romans, chapter 6. Paul, in writing to the Romans, basically set forth for them what the gospel was that he preached. So they would have a record of what is this... What is the saving message that we need to believe? What is the message that needs to be proclaimed? And that's what this whole book is about. So if you're if you're fuzzy on well, what exactly is the gospel, then the book of Romans is the book that you should prayerfully read. Actually, uh, William Tyndale, who was the first man to translate the New Testament from Greek into the English language uh, in around 1526, and he was murdered, put to death for that. It was considered to be a troublemaker because he gave the word of God to God's people. He actually recommended, as well as other of the reformers, that the book of Romans ought to be memorized, the entire book. You know, we're, most of us are going to feel pretty good if we have John 3.16 down, you know. Um, William Tyndale, Luther, and others recommended that we actually set the entire book of Romans to memory. So uh, there's some very special, wonderful promises in this book. Paul, in writing to the church in Rome uh, at that time, spoke of Christ and his resurrection. It says in chapter 6, we'll begin at verse 1. It says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death has Excuse me, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, meaning one time only, once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask you to be with us now as we consider your word, and we pray you bless us. And this we ask in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. really wants to, to look at the, the text where Paul makes reference to the resurrection of Christ in verse 8 and 9. He says, now if we died with Christ, meaning that when he died, that was our death because he died as us. If we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. That is that resurrection life. But then he makes a statement concerning the resurrection of Christ in verse 9. It's very important. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. That word dominion is uh, the same root as the word for lord or lordship over him. It has no more Lordship or authority, knowing that Christ being raised out from among the dead, literally, 
no longer is dying or no longer dies. Death no longer has dominion over him. Death has been nullified as the scriptures teach. Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.10, referring to Christ and his coming, uh, he says that the gospel has been preached. The gospel has been proclaimed. And in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, we have this declarative statement. Excuse me. It help if I got the right book. There we go. Chapter 1 says, in verse 8, Paul writes, writes to Timothy. And again, this is the last letter Paul wrote before he himself was put to death. <clears throat> so this is his literally last testimony. He tells Timothy, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. This is verse 8 of chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, and get this, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. The Greek is literally before eternal times. That means before the creation began, God gave you grace in Christ. Now, you could do that because Jesus was there throughout all eternity with the Father. As I was talking to a friend earlier this week, there's never, you know, we speak of time because we're made within the context of time as creatures. God dwells in eternity. He's a different sort of being than we are. There's never been a moment in God's existence when he didn't give you grace. When John writes in his gospel and he says, um, of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Grace, literally, it's grace over against grace. It's a really beautiful statement in John chapter 1. What he's saying is, when God hasn't dealt with you in grace, what's replaced it? Grace. Grace over against grace. So it's all of grace. That's what Paul's saying here. Before time began. But then he says, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. He's talking about Jesus' first coming. Who has abolished death. And brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. To which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. For I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Paul said, I know I'm suffering because I spoke the truth. And in this world, the truth isn't welcomed. At least not by the world. God has his people. As Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. They know my voice and they, they hear it. They receive it. But know what he says in verse 10. But now, that is this grace, has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel, the proclamation of the good news. The word gospel is an Anglo-Saxon word. Uh, you might have heard there's, there's I think, Godspell was a play. That kind of, I don't know what it was about, but... Uh, it was kind of, I think it was kind of weird, but it, there was a play on the word gospel because the, the, the Anglo-Saxon is God, G-O-D, but it's not the same as the word for God. It's how they said the word good. Spell is like message. You know, sometimes talk about, oh, the salesman gave his spiel, you know. Uh, God spell. That's where the word gospel comes from. It's the good message, the good news. The Greek is the euangelion. Ou is good, angelios, 
or angelion is the message. It's the good news. What is the good news? That grace is given to us in Christ Jesus. Christ died on the cross for sinners and he's risen from the dead. And God now graciously grants the forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all who believe upon him. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. But note what he says about Christ. He has abolished death. That word abolished, katargesantas, it's a participle there. Having abolished the death, literally on the one hand, he has now on the other brought life and incorruption or immortality to light through the gospel. Christ has abolished death. That word abolished, that katargesantas is a Greek word. It means to render idle, unemployed. Death is now unemployed. Interesting. Inactive, inoperative, to make a person or thing to have no further uh, efficiency, rather. To deprive of force, influence, or power. Secondarily, it can mean to cause to cease, to put an end to, to do away with, annul, abolish. To cease, to pass away, to be done away with. This is what Jesus did to death. John Owen preached a sermon, actually wrote a book, called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Christ slew death when he died. Death was broken. It also means to be severed from or separated from, discharged from, loosed from anyone, to terminate all relationships with one. In the King James, it's translated destroy five times, to do away, to abolish, to cumber, meaning to hinder, to loose, meaning to undo something, uh, to cease, to, to uh, fall, and several others. Uh, the word, when it says Christ has abolished death, it literally means he has destroyed death. Job, in speaking of his sufferings and physical death, he said they shall go down to the bars of the pit uh, when, our, when, when we rest together, or when our rest together is in the dust. Refer to physical death as being in the, the bars of the pit, because as men are concerned, there's this impassable barrier of physical death. Christ broke those bars. In Psalm 107 at verse 15 and 16, it says, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he hath broken the gates of brass and cut the bars of iron in sunder. This impenetrable terror. The king of terrors is how Bildad referred to it in the book of Job. Uh, Christ has destroyed it. He's cut those bars. He's broken them. In Isaiah 45, spoken of Cyrus of Persia, it, it refers to the success he would have. God has said, had said to him, I will go before thee and make the, make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. God was telling Cyrus, I will remove every hindrance Anything that gets in your way will be gone. This is what Christ did for us. Everything that blocked us from having eternal life and forgiveness. In the book of Jonah, Jonah describes his experience in the, the belly of the fish. In chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, he says, The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. He was in the belly of a fish for three days. Uh, three days and three nights. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life, my life, 
from corruption, O Lord my God. Jonah is definitely, a, when that fish vomited him out, it is a picture of the resurrection. Okay, It's not a pretty picture. I don't imagine a fish swimming up to the beach and puking out a prophet is a pretty sight, but it's a pretty sight to Jonah when he saw the light of day. God delivered him, but for those three days, what torment he must have experienced. Uh, he was trapped in the belly of a whale. He didn't know where, what was going to happen, but then God delivered him out. Well, Christ was under the power of death for three days and three nights, and then he was raised again from the dead on that third day. In Matthew 16, 18, Paul, excuse me, the Lord Jesus Christ says to Peter, And I say unto thee, uh, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. It's the rock of Peter's confession. But then he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of Hades, of hell, they won't prevail against the church. Why? Because the church preaches the gospel. The true church does. False church preaches itself. The true church preaches Jesus Christ as the only Savior from sin. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the true church because the true church preaches the gospel. And the gospel, as it says in Romans chapter 1, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. We're forgiven because the debt we owed has been fully paid for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. You look in the gospel of Luke, the very last chapter, chapter 24. <clears throat> Jesus spoke, at, this is chapter 24, at verse 44. This is after the resurrection. Jesus is with the disciples. It's before his ascension. And then Luke writes and tells us, Then he, that is Jesus, said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. That's the threefold division of the Hebrew Bible there. And then we read, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary, three things are necessary, for the Christ to suffer, secondly, and to rise from the dead the third day. And then thirdly, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name, to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. So Christ told, and he says, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. He said, don't try to do this in your own strength. You're going to need the Holy Spirit to help you. And that's exactly what happened. Christ paid the debt that we owe. Note, it was necessary for Christ to suffer. Why? Because we deserved to suffer. And I don't mean having an unpleasant day. We deserve to be in hell. We've sinned against an infinite and eternal God. Now, some people don't like that. Nobody should like the idea of going to hell. But some people don't like the idea that, well, what do you mean I've, I've done something that would merit that? Only your ignorance of who God is makes you think you don't deserve hell. Okay? I'm in the same boat until God opened my eyes, and hopefully he'll open yours too. And maybe they, I'm assuming they probably are open. I think every Christian would acknowledge. The more we understand God's goodness, his kindness, his grace, his majesty, everything about him, we begin to see what a vile, filthy thing that these little vile creatures made from the dirt of the earth sin against him, blaspheme his name, turn their backs on his grace, 
and his mercy, disobey his laws, take his name in vain, you know, allow wicked, evil, adulterous, lustful thoughts in their minds to go unchecked, covet other people's property, lie when they think it suits them, all these things in the presence of the most holy God, and somehow they think they don't deserve hell. On the day of judgment, when Christ returns, and all the secrets of everyone's hearts are laid bare before all mankind, the holy angels, and God himself, no one is going to question why someone is sent to hell. When we see sin for what it really is and how wicked and vile and hell-deserving it is, no one's going to say to God, well, isn't that kind of unfair doing that? Everyone who has their eyes open and understands, and even the wicked themselves are going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, it says, to the glory of God. When we see sin for what it is, we're going to acknowledge that God is just, absolutely just. There's no injustice in that sentence. But God in his mercy had a plan. His plan was to save his people from their sins. If you remember when Joseph was told to make sure that he named his son, that is his adopted son, he wasn't Jesus' biological father, but he was told, you shall call his name Jesus, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And then the reason is given, because Jesus in Hebrew is Yeshua, and that the word salvation, or Yehoshua. You should call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So when we talk about Christ taking our sins upon himself, when we consider the ugliness, the vileness, the just the, the horrible terror that we ought to be in at the very thought of sin, Christ took that upon himself. The idea was actually repugnant to his holy person. If you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he was arrested, what did he say? He said, Father, unless the, if this cup can pass, unless I drink it without me drinking it, but then he said, your will be done. And someone said, why did Jesus say that? He didn't say he wasn't going to do it, but he asked God if there was some other way. If this cup won't pass unless I drink it. But then he said, your will be done. What was he saying? Well, I think Matthew Henry points out and some other commentators that the idea of being identified with sin, even though Christ loved us and does love us, the idea of being identified with what sin is was so repugnant to his character and his person that he said, if there's some other way, Father. But then he said he knew that there is no other way. And because he loves us, because he loves you, he said, Father, your will be done. That's why he went to the cross. Jesus became identified with our sins and the full force of God's wrath, just wrath against us, was completely poured out upon Christ on the cross. It says in Isaiah 53, we looked at that Friday, at the Good Friday service, but it talks about him, the suffering of his soul, when he shall make his soul an offering for sin. Christ suffered in the very depth of his being. And because he's an eternal person, he was able to offer a sacrifice of infinite and eternal value. That's why you can be forgiven. The debt has been paid. He could, As an eternal person, he could suffer in time and pay the same price that you as a finite being would have had to suffer in hell for all eternity to pay. Because it's an eternal debt, because we've sinned against an eternal and infinite God. 
Now, I, I talk about this a lot. I know that. And I don't apologize for that because I think you need to hear it. Okay? I need to hear it. Uh, Christ died for us. He's the only one that could have. There was no other being in the entire universe who could save us except Jesus. And he wanted to. And he came. And he willingly gave his life. But we have to ask ourselves, it says he abolished death. He destroyed death. In what sense did he abolish it? We still presently die. Believers die physically. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and 26, For he, Christ, must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Speaking of Christ right now, reigning before the Father. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. By the way, that word destroyed, it's the same word uh, that we just looked at in Romans 6. Uh, Here we see it's translated destroyed. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So in one sense, death is destroyed, as this is what Paul says in Romans 6, 9. He has abolished death, literally destroyed death. But now we read that there's yet a future destruction of death. Revelation 20, verse 14 says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. There is a final reckoning and a destruction of death itself. Now, we hope in Christ and look forward to the final resurrection on the day of Christ's return. When we're going to be raised incorruptible, if we've died before the Lord returns, if you're alive, when he comes, you'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, Paul says in um, 1 Corinthians 15. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18, he says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede them which are asleep, that is, we're not going to go before them. Some in Thessalonians seem to have been worried that they knew Jesus was coming back and they, they, it'd been a while and people were dying in the church as they grew older or had gotten sick or had accidents. And they were worried, well, they're going to miss out on the Lord's second coming. And so Paul says, no, 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 they're not going to miss out on anything. He said, we're not going to precede them which are asleep. It's not like we're going to go to heaven and then you know go to be with the Lord and then maybe they, something happens nice to them. No, no, he said, that's not what, the Lord has a plan. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. He's describing the second advent. By the way, some people try to say, well, this is the secret rapture. Read this. There's nothing secret about this. This is a loud, noisy event, okay? Uh, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So when Jesus comes back, the dead are going to be raised up first. They're going to, you know, those who have died, the ones that Christians that are alive will be on the earth. They're going to see the graves open. You might find people popping out of the earth in places you didn't expect, okay? They might have died, you know, a few hundred years ago. Who knows when? Parts of Europe, they could have died, you know, several thousand years, a couple thousand years ago. But the dead will be raised. God knows how to bring your body back. He knows how to, he knew how to put you together in your mother's womb. He knows how to raise your body up on the last day. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So in uh, in that sense, we're going to see death destroyed at the resurrection. It's already been destroyed. It is being destroyed, and it shall be destroyed. Death as to its terrors and torments, has already been destroyed by Christ. Even though physical death for the present still is experienced, may be experienced by a Christian. Remember what Jesus said to uh, 
uh, Martha, when he came to raise her brother up, she said, I know that my brother will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, this is John 11, 25 and 26. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die, believest thou this. But yet we do die. What was Jesus talking about? In John chapter 5, Jesus spoke of this. That is being brought to life now and the future. Jesus said in John 5, 24 through 29, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath, that means presently has it, everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation or into judgment. That is to what it will be for the wicked. But is passed from death into life. It's already, it's in the perfect tense in the Greek. It means it's, it's already taken place. If you believe in Jesus, you've already passed out of the realm of death into life. He went on to say, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, present time, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. That's when the gospel is preached. The dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Somebody right now, when the gospel is preached, and people are born again, they're brought out of death into life. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Then Jesus went on to say, Marvel not at this, the hour is coming, he doesn't say now is, the hour is coming, a future time, in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Someone said, well, wait a minute, that sounds like work salvation. Let's talk about the future resurrection. Those who have done good, I don't always do good. Beloved, your sins have been taken away. They're not going to come up on the day of judgment. All right? You'll give an account of yourself for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. It says that in Scripture. But you're not going to be on at the judgment to see whether or not you're worthy to enter into heaven because your sins have been paid for. The only thing that's going to come up is what the Holy Spirit has done in your life. Those are the good things. If your sins are not going to be reckoned to you because they were reckoned to Christ, that is imputed to him, then on Judgment Day, the only thing that's coming up is what the Holy Spirit has done in you in conforming you to Christ. That's why we should be a people zealous of good works. Physical death currently is still part of the Christian's experience, but it has no terrors in it. We die, but we don't experience death. Paul says in Philippians 1, 21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I know not. Then he says, For I am in a strait betwixt two. Paul says, I'm not sure what to do here. I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Then he went on and said, But for now I need to remain in the flesh, because I want to minister to you and encourage you. But Paul says, to depart and be with Christ. When your physical body dies, you enter into the presence of the Lord. You've already passed out of death into life, John 5, 24. You know, it's funny, but as an illustration, you know, some of you know I had some medical procedures done and they had to anesthetize me. And I remember being on the table or whatever it was they had me on and this really sweet little lady came in who was the anesthesiologist 
said hello to me, did something, and then I woke up in the recovery room. <laughs> it was like, okay, it must have been good, okay, because they knocked me out and that was it. And I got to thinking about that. That's If I can use that as an analogy, and I have a feeling it's much more glorious when we enter into the Lord's presence. But um, it was like there was no pain in it. Pain came later. I've got some stories to tell you about that. But um, at the time, it was just, boop, that was it. I just passed some could say, well, you're going to lay on the table and you're going to pass into the recovery room. And I wouldn't have been able to say, yeah, I guess that's what happened. Um, God is good. When you leave this life, this world, in physical death, you're going to just enter into the Lord's presence if you're a believer. Okay? There's no death. Death itself has had all of its teeth kicked out. Okay? All right? Death is, has been annulled. It has been destroyed. It's, been, it's now unemployed. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul said, Therefore we always... Uh, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. <coughs> we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body, that means physically dead, and to be present with the Lord. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, we kind of alluded to that passage earlier in First Thessalonians, Note what Paul says here as he's writing to them. He says in verse 13, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others for have no hope, who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, now note what he says, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Jesus is coming back from heaven. Those who have passed on before are going to be brought with him. So where is their spirit? Where are they? They're in the Lord's presence. They're going to come back with him. Their bodies will be raised. Their spirits will be reunited with their physical bodies. And they will be raised and saved, as Paul says in chapter 5, in verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So at the resurrection, our souls are reunited with our bodies, and all is well. In the book of Hebrews, when he talks about you come to the heavenly Zion, uh, he says, uh, referring to that we have to do with the things of heaven, the writer of the Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, that's plural, meaning those who've been born again, who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, he's talking about what's going on in heaven, and then he says, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. So when you die, your spirit is perfected in the love of God, you go to be in the Lord's presence. That's not death, that's just simply passing into God's presence until your body is raised again been said it might be a little painful and difficult getting up to the gate but once you pass through you're fine it'll be good because you have god's promise because christ has destroyed death so we may ask how do we know that these wonderful and comforting promises are true well if we look to ourselves like well there's still death in the world physical death at least well we look to the lord jesus christ himself because he's the one of whom it is said 
that all the promises of God in him are yea and in him amen to the glory of God. He's the one is said presently that he has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. Christ is risen from the dead, never to die again, as our text says. His resurrection was not a resuscitation. He is risen from the dead, never to die again. In actuality, you know, we read of the new heavens and the new earth. There's a new creation. It says if any man is born again, if any man is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Some render it a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Why are we new creatures? Because we're in Christ. But Christ has initiated the new creation physically as well as spiritually by his resurrection. His physical body was raised from the grave. He was raised in the same body in which he died. The tomb is empty, despite what some of the cults try to say. By the way, you deny the resurrection, you put yourself outside the pale of Christianity. The Bible is very clear. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. The sections we read in the Gospels, pretty clear. Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead. The church has always confessed that because that's what happened. All the promises of God in Christ are yea and amen. Jesus Christ our Lord has risen from the dead. He's destroyed death. And now we're witnessing the outworking and application of his victory in history. It's all about him. He has the victory and he imparts that victory and shares it with us. What has been fulfilled in him will be applied and fulfilled in us. Ultimately, when he returns in glory, but presently when we believe in him and are brought out of death into life. Remember, he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has, present tense, everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is already passed out of death into life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, that is, no longer subject to sin, no longer subject to sickness or death or anything like that, will be raised in the same way Christ is raised from the dead. And we shall be changed. John said in 1 John chapter 3 at verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We're going to see Jesus. And when you see him, it's going to change you for eternity. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So we have this threefold uh, aspect of Christ's victory for his people. So then by the bodily resurrection, Christ's death, of Christ rather, death has been destroyed. Secondly, for believers presently, it is being, because it already has been, and is being destroyed. And when Christ returns in glory on the last day, it will finally and ultimately be forever destroyed and gone. In the new heavens and the new earth, there is no death. There's no sin either. It's going to be glorious. Christ is raised never to die again because the legal debt we owed being imputed to him, being fully paid and removed, never again does death have any claim upon him nor upon us. Death was so destroyed in the sufferings of Christ that even after Jesus' physical body died, it saw no corruption. Death had no more effect upon him. That's clearly testified in both testaments. His flesh saw no corruption. There was no rottenness settled in, okay? Uh, because death could no longer have any effect upon him. And so Christ rested in the tomb in an incorrupted condition, though he was physically dead till the third day. Christ, again, as I said, was not merely resuscitated. 
He is risen out from among the dead, never to die again, because death no longer has any claim or lordship or dominion upon him. We should shout it. Christ is risen. And because he lives forever in the glory of God, so shall we. Paul says in Romans 6, 9, as we said, knowing that Christ, knowing that, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dies no longer. Death no longer has dominion over him. The message is pretty clear. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. And because he lives, we shall live also. We live now by his grace. Amen. Glory to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to bless us now and be with us. We pray, Lord, you'd seal your word, the testimony of the gospel to our hearts in true faith, in true repentance, and love to you and others. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.